Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Scripture tonight is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, page 1013 in the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to not... I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ, him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human, with, of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Wow. Awesome. Isn't it wonderful to be with God's people on a Sunday evening and singing praises like that to God and just to know that God is with us, among us, and he's receiving the praise we're offering to him. And man, has he ever given us more reasons to praise him than we can possibly even imagine. God is good and so very good. Uh, tonight we are continuing our series through the book of uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians, our series entitled "By the Book," and uh, tonight our text is the second chapter of First Corinthians, verses one through five. Second Corinthians, chapter two, verses one through five. Paul writes, "And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom." For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is our text for this evening. And while studying this, I, I came across, uh, our brother Burton Kaufman's comments on this particular passage, and I think that they will be really helpful to kind of help us set the stage for what we're going to dig out of this text together. You can read along with me. Uh, one of the problems in Corinth was related to the pretentious, empty philosophy of the Greeks, who so highly regarded the eloquent speeches of the popular leaders of such sophistry. Sophistry is subtle, subtly deceptive. All right, so the, the way that they spoke and delivered their philosophies, there was subtle deception woven through it, of course, because of the influence of Satan over the course of time. And, and Paul gave his reasons for not following the popular methods of oratory in his preaching of the word of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, our text. However, fully mature Christians could look forward to an understanding of the true wisdom of God as contrasted with that current sophistry, that of course will be our next text, the Lord willing, next week, um, and the mystery of God, far more wonderful than the so-called mysteries of the Greeks, could be participated in by those of genuine spirituality. 
Throughout this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul makes it clear the glory of the Christian faith is resonant in the content of the gospel and not in the manner of its presentation. And that is something that I want to make sure that we all get our minds wrapped around tonight, that, uh, that the glory of the Christian faith is resonant, that is to be found in, to be found in the content of the gospel and not in the manner of its presentation. As Paul writes in the first verse of our text, and I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Paul had been educated at Tarsus, which Strabo uh, preferred as, uh, uh, which he preferred as a school of learning above either Alexandria or Athens. And he had also been schooled at the feet of Gamaliel, Acts 22, verse 3, the famed scholar in Jerusalem. In other words, Paul had the best education available to a human being in his day. He was extremely well-educated, and, and, and his credentials in that department were well-known and respected both among the Jews and among the Gentiles. And so, but Paul was what we would call a university man, the outstanding scholar of his generation. Nevertheless, he despised the pedantry or pedantry, which is uh, basically uh, the tendency to display knowledge for the purpose of showing off that was characteristic of the folks of this generation. The superficiality and the narrow conceit of those who received as intellectuals. Paul rejected their methods. Listen, this is good. Paul rejected their, method, their methods because he was above them, not because he was inferior to them. Paul had a wide acquaintance with all the learning of his generation. He quoted uh, Aratus, Epimenides, and uh, Menander. And we see, of course, the references there where he does that in Scripture. Uh, he counted all such, but he, he, he counted all such polite learning as mere dross, as compared with the gospel of Christ. Therefore, the meaning of this verse, that is 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, the meaning of this verse is that when Paul went to Corinth, he renounced all the tricks and devices of oratory, refused to accommodate the gospel to the style of the Greek philosophers, and did not try to adorn the truth with pagan wisdom. That Paul had the ability to do such things may not be doubted for a moment, but he wanted their faith to be in the power of God and not in the ability of human beings. That really kind of encapsulates the message of the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2. So let's delve into the text itself. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Lofty speech or wisdom. Now again, Kaufman has brought up the fact that this is, does not mean that Paul's preaching was without substance. It doesn't mean that what he was saying was not intelligible or intelligent. It means that he did not try to win the people over by appealing to what was culturally appealing to the people in that period of time. And this is an important message for us today also, to recognize where the power of the gospel is actually to be found. I love the, the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, such an important place for us to get the concept that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, because in Acts chapter 4, we see Peter and John, after they healed the, the man lame from birth at the gate called Beautiful, and he's following them in the temple, leaping for joy and praising God. And of course, nobody can deny what has just occurred, but, but they don't like 
they don't like why it has occurred or who got the credit for it because Peter begins to preach there in Acts chapter 3 and declare that it's the name of Jesus that has made this man whole. And the enemies of the cross didn't like that one bit, so Peter and John find themselves before the Sanhedrin. Big trouble. They find themselves before the court of the Jews, being commanded not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and as Peter and John are answering these elites of the Israelite nation, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're holding their own. Not only are they holding their own, but they've got, they've got the moral authority in this exchange. It's not that they don't have intelligible words to say, but we see in Acts 4.13 that the members of the Sanhedrin recognize that Peter and John were ignorant and unlearned men. Ignorant and unlearned men. But that didn't mean they were stupid. They were recognizing the opposite of that. It meant that they did not have a formal education, nor did they talk like they had one, right? That's the point of what's going on in Acts chapter 4, but they noted that they had been with the Lord Jesus. That's what the text says. Being with the Lord Jesus is the education that matters. That's the education that matters. We read in Romans 10, verse 17, so, that, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. In other words, the power to save souls is not in the messenger, but in the message itself. We read in, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul said, I, I, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, for faith, for faith, to faith, depending on your Bible version, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. A quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, I believe, verse 6. Those are Paul's words that, that, that help us to see the mentality that the Holy Spirit had given him, which was the basis for his work and the basis for his success. In other words, in understanding the message of the cross of Christ, Paul saw his aim in life. Paul understood the demonstration of true human greatness. It's not in pedantry. It's not in showing off. It's not in being the kind of person that seeks praise upon him or herself. It's not being the kind of person that has to be valued or needs the approval of other people around him. Now, we all love the approval of our fellow man, and I would rather be your friend than your enemy, and I'd rather you like me than dislike me. But at the end of the day, what matters is Jesus. And the gospel of Christ. And if Jesus favors me and what I'm doing, then it doesn't really matter if you do or not. And I'm not being mean to you. I'm just telling you that's the same attitude you should have towards me. And that we should all have toward our fellow man and toward the world. What matters is the will of God. And God's will leads us to sacrifice our vanity to put away our pride, to nail it to the cross and be done with it so that we can become people who are no longer functioning with divided loyalties. But it's hard to be a faithful gospel preacher if your mind is wrestling and struggling between, ooh, I want the brethren to love me and I want their compliments and I want them to say all kinds of things about how smart I am and how eloquent I am and how good of a preacher I am. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, it feels good to hear that kind of thing. But if that is your motivation... If it's even warring in your mind to become your motivation, it's going to be hard for you to preach the pure gospel of Christ because its ethic at its core is one of self-denial, humility, 
and the servant spirit. And that spirit does not seek its own glory. This is the message of the Apostle Paul in our context. I gave you that wonderful little illustration there because it just reminds me of, uh, well, of many of my heroes of the faith. Uh, many of you know the history of our brotherhood that culminating in 1906, the, the churches that comprise the, the American Restoration Movement, which is our most recent historical roots, were split in a, in a terrible, terrible way because of disagreements over the American Missionary Society and the use of instruments in the worship of the church. Those are the main two issues that split the church in that day. And the, the, the churches that went the other direction from our forefathers, well, they were the wealthier churches in the richer places. They owned the schools of learning, the universities. All of the good stuff went with them. And the churches of Christ, us, our forefathers, were left mostly rural, mostly poor, without resources, without educational institutions to train our preachers uh, up in the faith. And so it has been said that many of our preachers in the first several decades of the 1900s were men who learned the Bible with one hand on the plow and one hand on the New Testament. And that is largely true. It's largely true. Gus Nichols is probably the most notable of that generation of men who literally memorized most of the New Testament in that way plowing his field to feed his family. And I'll tell you what, I believe that that exemplifies with this spirit. Don't mistake what Paul is teaching. He's not being negative about education. Far from it. There is no such thing as, as a, a genuine expression of the Christian faith that is not highly concerned with the growth of the individual Christian and the knowledge of the Word of God and in wisdom and, and in all speech, the ability to communicate. This is something Paul says in the first chapter of this book in 1 Corinthians. He was happy that the church at Corinth had all of the knowledge that had been revealed by the Spirit to this point. And they had been enriched in all speech. In other words, so that they could communicate that message. Paul says that to the church at Corinth, and that's one of the things he's happy about. So when we get to chapter 2, he's not saying you should all be a bunch of dummies and backward folks that can't you know, string a couple of sentences together. Under white. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is pointing at the thing that is right in the middle of the gospel. What he's doing is he's pointing at the thing that ought to be right in the middle of our hearts and in the middle of our lives. The thing that ought to be informing our search for knowledge, motivating it, controlling it. The, the thing that ought to be moving us to speak, even to speak with passion, with power, to get better at communicating the gospel. And that is the Jesus that is right at the heart of it. And the sacrifice that he's made. And if you're going to communicate the gospel and not be in danger of being considered a hypocrite, you need not only to communicate the words of it, but you need to strive to embody the spirit of it. And that means you don't come to show off. It means you don't come to win arguments. It means you come to win souls, to win hearts, to win minds. Jesus. And to accomplish that, you need moral authority. And that comes from humility, not from arrogance. And that is why Paul came and spoke the way that he spoke, which was not impressive. But oh boy, the content of that message was the most wonderful message that has ever been shared. Continuing the passage, Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And this, of course, does not mean that all he did was walk around and people would say, hey, Paul, Jesus Christ and him crucified. <laughs> it doesn't mean that, how you doing today? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean that's all he said as far as the phrase goes. It means that all of his interactions with people, his, his aim, his agenda, listen, every interaction he had with the folks in Corinth, in that conversation, he was going to make sure that for his part, the aim of that conversation was going to lead to a talk about Jesus. That's what he means. And brothers and sisters, <laughs> if we believe that this is the inspired word of God, and, and we do, I know you do, if we believe that Paul intends for us to imitate him, as he will later in this book say, chapter 11, verse 1, we ought to do, that then we need to recognize that this mindset that he was modeling, that he was communicating about here in these five verses, we need to recognize that we need to embrace that model as well. And that means in our interactions with people in our world, that means our family members, it means our co-workers, our, our fellow students at school. It means our neighbors. Anybody that we're interacting with in our lives, it means we need to think in the same way Paul did, that, that at the end of the day, I don't know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I know. And so in my conversation, I'm not going to be hopefully foolish about it because this passage is not about being fools. It's about being wiser than what is considered wise in the fallen world of our times. That's what it's about. And so what I need to be doing when I'm having a conversation with you is I need to be thinking, how can I in this conversation bring things to Jesus and point things to Jesus so that Jesus gets the glory in everything that we're talking about and so that I can, can be built up and strengthened in my dependence upon Jesus and in my trust on Jesus and in placing Jesus right at the center of my life like I'm supposed to. And so that in doing so, hopefully, I will influence you to do the same thing so that the cross of Christ will be right in the middle of you. And every one of your faculties and all of your mind and your whole nature and your world, Jesus has got to be right there in the middle of that, right in the center of that. And if it is so, well, then I think you'll be able to say about your interactions with people the same thing that Paul said about his interactions with them. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Man, that is powerful. And I just want to say as we consider this, that we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. The cross is the main thing. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the main thing. That's the gospel. And that is where the, the power of God unto salvation is to be found, it is to be experienced, and it is to be shared. And there is no truth that the world needs to hear more than that. The Son of God died for their sins and was buried and rose from the dead the third day. Any person that embraces those truths, any person that embraces the truth of that gospel, they will never be the same again and not for the worse. If they continue in that embrace, their minds will become smarter, their hearts deeper in love, their souls more spiritual, while none of us in this life are free from the reality of trials and temptations and, 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 and stumbling blocks and, and all of these sorts of negative things that happen, overall, the picture of your life will be one of blessing, of glory leading to, testifying to, 
looking forward to greater glory still. I have preached about the subject of sanctification. Maybe you'll remember I like to preach about sanctification and call it the three degrees of sanctification. All right, it's one of my favorite things to preach on. When I preach in gospel meetings in various churches, I, I often want to preach this sermon because I think it's so important. I think it's something that is often misunderstood. But there are three degrees of sanctification. And, and if you're not familiar with that word, sanctification is the process of being sanctified, which means the process of becoming holy or being made holy by God. And so part of God's purpose in our walk with him through faith is that we be sanctified. That is that we be made holy. As Peter says, quoting the Exodus, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so that means we are to be drawn into a more and more complete state of separation from sin. And a, a more complete state of, of separation from all that is in the world that is in rebellion against our God. That's holiness and it's what we're called to and when a person obeys the gospel initially first degree of sanctification when someone comes up out of the waters of baptism their sins have been washed away they've been added to the church acts 22 16 acts 2 47 and at that point in time it's as if god the judge has brought the gavel down and said not guilty and therefore the new christian in the eyes of god is sinless and that is the very definition of holy the second degree of sanctification is in the life that we live in pursuit of Christ, in which, aided by the Holy Spirit, it is our obligation to try to make what the Lord has decreed about us through grace to be actual in the way that we think, speak, and the way that we live and act in this world. That's the second degree of sanctification. It's our responsibility with the Holy Spirit itself. The third degree of sanctification will not be your work. It will be God's work yet again. On Judgment Day, when you are raised with your new and perfect body, you'll be made just like Jesus, and that body will no longer be able to be tempted by sin. And then for eternity, in glory, in joy, in bliss, in peace, you will live with your God and your Father, your Savior Jesus Christ, in the midst of the Holy Spirit in a perfect environment forever in which no evil, no sin, no harm, no hatred, no strife, no rejection will ever happen to anyone there again. Perfect holiness. That's God's aim. But brothers and sisters, the first step is in this life the most important. Because if you never take the first step, you'll never do the second. And if you never take the first and never do the second, you will not experience the third. Does that make sense? And so, brothers and sisters, preaching to people about how they should live day to day is important. Preaching to the church how we should worship is vital about church organization, all the aspects of Christian life. It's important stuff, but it only means anything to people who have first come to receive the gospel, to believe it, to give themselves to Jesus in faith. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm going to preach on these various aspects of church life and church worship and, and Christian life on a daily basis. I'll do that, but, but if I ever do that more, than, than to center my preaching on the gospel itself. I'm doing you a disservice. And I'm doing the world a disservice. Because it is that core gospel that is the reason and cause for every blessing that God lays before us in this life and in the one to come. And so Paul said, we're establishing a church here. We're establishing a church. It's going to be built on Jesus it's going to be comprised of people who love Jesus, who believe in Jesus. And therefore, Paul said, for this phase, 
in the development of that church, I refused to talk about anything else. And every conversation that he had with those folks, he moved it in the direction of the gospel of Christ to talk about Jesus, for he, brothers and sisters, is the main thing. Continuing in our text, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Weakness and fear and trembling. These are terms which uh, have a slightly symbolic meaning in most of the contexts in which we find them in Scripture. When we're told that we ought to relate to our God in terms of fear and trembling, it does not mean that we should literally be walking around with our teeth chattering and shaking and terrified of God. That would not be very practical. <laughs> that would not be a practical way to reach this world. That's not what ultimately God is asking for. What He's asking for on the inside is a certain state of reverence and of transparency. That's what he's talking about. Let me explain to you what I believe Paul means in this context. Fear and trembling. Uh, Paul is talking about his transparency. In other words, when Paul was walking around Corinth and teaching, you, you could summarize much of what he would say about himself with these phrases. It's not about me. You probably could hear him saying various versions of, I'm far from perfect. Now, you can read Paul's writings. Doesn't he confess that? Doesn't he talk about and lament even his former life in Judaism when his zeal led him to be a persecutor of Christ and of his church? Those things just tore him apart that he'd been involved, been involved in those kinds of horrible sins. He calls himself the chief of sinners, or depending on your version, the foremost of sinners. And he says that, that it's because of that that Jesus chose him and saved him, that Paul himself might be a living example to all who have sinned, that Jesus is death. Is, is more than equal of a price to pay for your sins. And so he might have said something along the lines of come follow, not me, don't come follow me, but come follow with me. It's that transparency. Brothers and sisters, we need to be approaching the world in the same way. I think the world has had enough of self-righteous Pharisees who want to go out to the world and say, hey, look at me. Look how righteous I am. Look how good I'm doing at this Christian thing. You ought to come follow me because I got it all together. You know what happens when people follow somebody that speaks that way? Kind of reminds me of what Jesus said about the Pharisees. Leave them alone. They're the blind leading the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. No, what we need to be as we go out into the world and interact with the people in our, in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our community, we need to be saying, look, I am sincerely trying to follow Jesus. And, and I, I will tell you that I am not afraid to say, put me to the test about that. And, and listen, if you can't say to the people in your world, watch me, look at me, and see if I'm not the real deal, then you need to be repenting tonight. Maybe in your own seat there, maybe you need to come ask for prayers. I don't know what you need to do. It's not my place to tell you. But if you cannot say to people, watch my life and test me and see if I'm not the real deal, then, then maybe you're not. Are you hearing me? I'm not trying to be hard. I'm just, let's just be honest about it. Let's be truthful about it. But as you're doing that, you need to be saying, now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that I never stumble. I'm not saying that I never have moments of weakness. I'm not saying that I don't have sins in my life. Brothers and sisters, 
My life every day is a struggle against the weaknesses of this flesh. And yours is too. And I don't do anybody a shred of good by pretending it's otherwise. That's not what saves people. In fact, when they see genuine Christians who are the real deal, that if you watch them and see, they're actually really trying to follow Jesus. And those people are humble and transparent. There's power in that. Because that displays one thing and one thing only. Same thing the Sanhedrin saw in Peter and John. Ha, huh. they had been with the Lord Jesus. That, that is the power of the gospel. And that is the power behind a truly effective Christian example. Reverence, on the other hand, it's all about Jesus. He is truly perfect. Why am I living this Christian life? Why don't I run to the same excess of riot as people in the world? There's the, how about that for some King James language? Why don't we run to the same excess of riot? Why? Because Jesus is perfect. Because Jesus loves me. Because Jesus has saved me in spite of my wickedness. Therefore, even though the journey is going to be messy, I'm keeping my eyes on him, and I'm never looking back. There's power in that reverence and that transparency. Let's follow him. Those are Paul's words, and those are the words of every faithful Christian. Continuing our text, Paul says that his speech and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And he gives us his reason here. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Brothers and sisters, I think that maybe in the churches of Christ today in 2023 and probably for a long time, that these last phrases in this text are probably the ones that we have the hardest time to deal with. Probably because we've had such a hard time with the Holy Spirit. There's been so much division, so much debate, so many accusations that have been uh, leveled against brothers and sisters in Christ over how we interpret the passages in the Bible that speak about the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to break it down and I hope make some sense of it. You know, in Paul's day, there was an overt way that Paul could demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit that we don't have access to today, right? And so let's go ahead and get that get that out there. The Apostle Paul in his writings talks about coming to certain places and he's going to show them not his words, but his power. The Apostle Paul strike, he struck a man blind because of his, uh, his opposition to the gospel. There's power that Paul wielded because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul had, had the power of the Holy Spirit so that, that, that uh, people could take a handkerchief that Paul had touched and bring it to sick people and touch them with the handkerchief and by the power of the Spirit they would be healed. And so Paul could come to town with this new message that none of these Greeks had ever heard, pagans that they were. And Paul could demonstrate the power of the supernatural, miracle-working gifts of God. And that's something that we can't do. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit is not powerful today, brothers and sisters. It doesn't, in fact, mean that the Spirit is any less powerful. In fact, I believe the way the Holy Spirit works today is every bit as powerful as that way, and maybe even more so. 
with regard to the ultimate aim of those powers as they were given. Because the second chapter of Hebrews tells us that God gave them those powers in order to confirm the word. Later in, I think, chapter 6 of Hebrews, it might be chapter 10, you check me on that. But later Paul talks about these miraculous gifts as the, 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 the powers of the age to come. Not powers that belong to this age, powers of the coming age. Right? But they were given to many of the Christians in the first century so that they could confirm the word of God that they were preaching. And so Paul could come to town, he could proclaim Christ, he could heal the sick, he, he, he could work these miracles in order to show that his message truly did come from the one true and living God. And that now having been done, we, brothers and sisters, have the testimony of Scripture, which frankly is a better ally than miracles especially in this day and age of cynicism and skepticism, this day and age in which this rich world has seen everything, this technological era in which anything can be faked. Now, of course, there have been charlatans in every age of the world, but there are certain things you cannot fake. And when we see the miracles we read about in the Gospels and in Acts, as well as in the Old Testament, the rest of the Bible, we see that God put these miracle workers in situations to where they would work miracles that could not be denied, just like the one I referred to, Acts chapters 3 and 4, the man that was healed that everybody had seen in the temple every day, all his life, who had been lame since his youth, when they made him to walk and leave and praise God. Well, you can say what you want to say, but the folks in the Sanhedrin couldn't deny that a notable miracle had been done, right? And so they, they, they tried to tell Peter and, and John not to preach anymore in Jesus' name, but that was a ridiculous thing for them to say. Why are you going to listen to the Sanhedrin? Why are you going to be worried about what they can do to you when you know that you are a servant of the living God who is all-powerful? You're going to yield to these wicked men who the, the, the end of their power is maybe taking your life? Are you going to fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell, Matthew 10, verse 28? You're going to fear God if you have any sense at all. Now, of course, brothers and sisters, we have the word of God in prayer. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I think that we need to avail ourselves of this methodology that Paul gives us in this context. And we need not to be afraid when we're discipling people and trying to lead them along in their growth in the faith. We need not to be afraid to ask them to pray to God for blessings. We need not to be afraid to ask them to pray to God for guidance. If they're struggling with something that you're trying to teach them, then, then ask them, pray to God to open your mind to understand these things that we're talking about and give the Holy Spirit the opportunity that he's asking for to prove himself in the lives of these seekers. Are you hearing this? Converting people to Christ is not all about your skill in answering questions. In fact, brothers and sisters, that ain't even the first 10 steps. Not if we understand 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Now, I don't mean any harm, but a number of years ago, a rather bold Mormon missionary, when I was working with the previous congregation, decided he was going to convert all the preachers at the Church of Christ there. I appreciate his boldness. Man, what a courageous fellow. But uh, he came by the church office and wanted to set up a study with those of us preaching. And it's like, dear mercy, how, how, 
how does something great like this ever happen, you know? Of course, he, he wasn't realizing what he was getting into. We'll put it that way. But we met together for several weeks. And, and, and the bottom line is, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to be unkind, but the bottom line is that, that there was no substance to the message that he was trying to share. And at the end of our discussions, as I would share evidence and ask for evidence in return, it would be, why don't you just pray to God and ask him to show you that the Book of Mormon is true? That was the request. And I said, how can I pray a self-fulfilling prayer like that? Pray to God and ask him to show me that the Book of Mormon is true? I could pray to God and say, would you show me if the Book of Mormon is true? That I could pray. But you see the, the subtlety, the sophistry, just to use Kaufman's word we used a moment ago, you see the sophistry, the subtle deceit in that kind of thing? Don't ask somebody to pray to God to show them that the Bible is true. But you can ask them to pray to God to show them if the Bible is true. Don't tell them to suspend their intellect. That's not what Paul is doing in this context. And in fact, we understand from the biblical definitions of faith in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews that faith is not something to be separated from knowledge. It is something that is to be bolstered upon a knowledge of the Word of God. And so, brothers and sisters, in this context, we have one of the most important messages in the book of 1 Corinthians as Paul is continuing to develop this, this letter to this church which is so rich in its application to our world today. The bottom line message of the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is this, and that is that we need to keep the main thing the main thing because the power of God unto salvation, the power of God is in the gospel. It is in the message of Christ. And if you haven't received the message of Christ, then being taught about Christian life, about church organization, about church worship is meaningless and a waste of time. But when you have embraced the gospel of Christ, then the Spirit will open up your heart to hunger and thirst for all of those things that are the contents of righteousness. Then you will be on the pathway to true and final sanctification. And brothers and sisters, in spite of the evils and hardships of this life, that is the life. It's the good life. It's the fun life. It's the blessed life. It's the happy life. And it's to be found in the person of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when push comes to shove, I don't know anything or anyone else. And I hope the same thing is true for you. This evening, if you need to respond to the invitation, the opportunity is yours. The front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.